Welcome to Pathfinders and Biopharma, brought to you by RBC Capital Markets. I'm Joe Coletti, your host, and our guest today is Dr. Chen Yu, founder and managing partner at TCG Crossover, or TCGX as it's also known. I'm also joined by my colleague, Noel Brown, the head of U.S. Biotechnology Investment Banking here at RBC Capital Markets. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. Thanks, Joe. Chen, we did want to give you a chance to sort of introduce yourself even more to some of our listeners. And if you could share a little bit about your own background, you're a founder of TCG, and maybe you could tell us a little bit more about TCG, particularly, you know, your philosophy and your sort of uh, investment focus. Sure. So I'm a physician by training. I started my investment career in biotech in the early 2000s when I joined as an associate for a firm called Bevo Capital, which is another life science investment firm. I was there for 16 years, basically left in August 2020 as a managing partner, and really started TCGX to summary as part of an ongoing conversation I had with the Column Group, which is a very well-known early stage company formation focused VC. And so I think the idea of offering effectively a complement to what they already did so well in the early stage by essentially having what we call mixed mandate fund, where we could invest both in private late stage rounds, classic quote-unquote crossover rounds as well as publics. And so our mandate is 50-50 across the two markets, and we're really committed to both sides of the market. I think that's quite unusual. Most funds you see are typically dominated either as public funds or as private funds. And for many reasons that we can talk about later, we really believe this mixed mandate fund offered us the flexibility to really adjust and accommodate the different market cycles. So that's really the gist of what we're doing at TCGX. And it's why I think we've been excited. I think to some degree that the market cycle has kind of proven out the value of having some flexibility. And that's great. And I mean, let's dive right into the market off of that, because obviously you're going to have a very unique and informed perspective that our, our listeners want to hear about. Can you take a step back and share your thoughts and your perspective on sort of, you know, the, the state of the market and, and where things may be headed? Well, I think it's been pretty amazing to see how dynamic it's been. You know, when we started the fund, which was in Q1 of 2021, we were effectively at the peak of biotech for the last 20 years. And I think at the end of Q2, we were effectively at the bottom of the biotech market of the last you know, 20 years. And so I think it's obviously very, very challenging to figure out how to call a market cycle. And I think we basically believe that's fundamentally a, a probably a fool's errand. So I think maybe inside, I think of it as here are the things that we're thinking about or looking at. So I think the first is, how has the market changed fundamentally? Meaning if you were to go back before the boom period of 2013, we used to say that pre-clinical companies had a negative pre-money value. You have to actually pay me to invest in these companies. But of course, over the last seven or eight years, it was a reverse of that, right? Almost a third, not more of the companies that were able to go public were actually pre-clinical, right? You can generate a lot of value on narrative. And so I think one of the big questions that we're trying to figure out is, is the world going to go back to that pre-boom time era? where preclinical companies become very challenging to finance, or has something fundamentally changed that we're never going to go back to that era? I think the second thing that we're really looking out is how will the private markets change? As you know, the old market used to be in the venture side, a split between early stage and information focused VCs, then you had late stage venture investors, and then you had public investors. And during the boom period, that middle segment of late stage venture investors basically disappeared because they either had to become company formation investors or public investors. And so how will the private markets adapt to a market where that group of financiers don't really exist? And then finally, how will public investors react to private exposure, right? We're just at the beginning slash middle of a downturn. And so as many of these private companies now are 
being forced to finance as private companies, will those public investors who came into the private market want to stick around? So I think those are the three things that we are looking for in, in terms of how we're thinking about clubs out of the next year or so in the market. Let me ask you a question about maybe IPO markets specifically as we sort of continue this. As you said, it's calling the markets the fool's errand, which I think is a great way to put it. But when you kind of look at the IPO market, what signals are you watching for? What else are you paying attention to that might indicate to you at some point that something's changing or that it's opening up more, that it may pick up? Are there things that from your standpoint that you're going to keep your eye on, particularly over the next six plus months? I think it's very possible that we will see a slow but steady cadence of IPOs, particularly in companies where I think a couple of factors are satisfied. Number one, you've got a very strong insider syndicate where those, frankly, investors can just muscle out an IPO and commit big time to that book. I think the second piece is that their clinical stage is a bit more mature, where there's an upcoming catalyst that is high contrast. And I think people can legitimately say, look, that's an interesting house to want to bet on. And then I think you have a comp set that's in the public markets that's trading attractively, where you want to call it that arbitrage trade between what your value will be at the IPO relative to your comp set that hopefully is trading at two times that value. I think if you satisfy those three things, I could see a slow and steady cadence of, of companies going public. And I can tell you that, you know, as an investor right now, we're on the side of a couple of companies where we're certainly tempted to test the market. It's very scary to try to be the first company out there. But the flip side of it is if you're too late, because there's such a long queue of private companies seeking to go public, there's, I think, a real risk that if you don't come out quickly, you're just going to end up stuck behind literally over 100 companies that are trying to get public. And UBS may not be able to have that real estate window. So I think my current bias is actually that as long as the market stays in its current status, which is volatile, but to some degree a bit more stable than it was you know, certainly a quarter or two, I suspect a couple of companies will test the waters. Thank you, Chen. Noel, what are you seeing from the banking side? It's an interesting time. I agree with everything Chen is saying. And I actually think that this sort of anxiety in the market may be a healthy thing. I sort of think about an analog like a person who's walking a high wire and knows the pain of falling off and they've been hurt, right? So long as that person isn't left rigid with fear, that person walking across that high line next time around is going to operate with hopefully their antenna sort of attuned to the dangers, the pitfalls. And that might be wishful thinking because we say that every time there is a downturn. Well, hopefully we learned our lessons from these past events. Like we should have known when the IPO market had gotten so hot that things are going to end badly. I don't know necessarily about all that. I think there is sort of a healthy level of cynicism with respect to valuation, with respect to what works in the market. And following those three rules that Chen laid out makes total sense. But I expect what helps us recover is people managing their day-to-day with a little more of this healthy anxiety. This could go horribly wrong if this market does not execute well. And so I think it tamps down the likelihood of, to coin a term, irrational exuberance, right? To sort of steal a term. I think there's lower likelihood of things raging out of control and then us ending up in a bad spot again. People are sort of walking tentatively. Yeah, I would agree with that. I, I think that you have now existing investors who are reasonable on valuation, right? No one's looking to overprice the deal and then find themselves grossly underwater a day after the IPO. I think the second thing, and this is maybe peeling the onion one more layer, which is I think different types of investors are looking at this question a little differently. So for example, for us, we're a what's called a closed end fund, meaning we have patient committed capital over a long duration of time. 
we don't have redemptions, right? So that's something we have to care about. And so for us, truth be told, for the vast majority of our companies that go public, I actually don't even care how it trades because I'm usually betting on a full value creation catalyst that's oftentimes it's called a year or two after the IPO itself. But other investors that are, let's say, public structure, meaning they have mark-to-market compensation and they have to think about redemption pressure, I think it's a little bit different for them because for them, it's like, okay, if I support an IPO and it drops 30%, year just kills me because I can't recover from that hole by December this year. And so for those investors, I think going public is a pretty scary proposition. So I think this will speak to in the longer run. I think as private companies think about their quote unquote crossover rounds, the next time around as an old point, if you're smarter about it now, you think, well, gosh, I really loved having those public guys around back then. But now in a tough market, it's not so obvious it's helpful right? Because their incentives are now not necessarily aligned to the long-term value creation path that I want to be on as a company. So as I said, this is kind of how it would be very interesting to see how public market investors who were on the private side kind of react because I think how they act over the next year will have a long-term impact on how companies perceive them when the cycle turns around. So I'm hearing for you is that for you in particular, short-term volatility is not as much of a concern from your standpoint, but it may be for others, especially between now and the end of the year or beyond. That's correct. I mean, you know, we actually see a couple of structural issues that kind of impact how assets are basically priced. As an example, if you care a lot about your returns up through December, because that's how you're going to get paid this year, companies that have, we call them long-dated catalysts, the catalysts that are going to happen two years from now, are actually almost fundamentally unattractive to them. Because even if they believe those cows will be positive, they just can't hold them. Moreover, right, they have to just carry market exposure and risk. Right? So in contrast for us, I basically don't care about any of those things. I just care if the long-term catalyst is positive. And so those tend to be, in our view, most mispriced in the market and are actually the most attractive for us because they offer the best reward for the lowest risk. So that's how I think how structure may alter how folks want between how much exposure they want right now versus managing kind of risk in the, the next couple of months. Thank you, Chen. Those are some really key things that you pointed out there. Noel, how does this affect the financing side? You know, it really affects the financing market as well, that whole line of thinking of whether or not I have milestones or critical catalysts that are going to occur within a current bonus cycle for example, right? I mean, it becomes very difficult sometimes to finance, even on the back of a catalyst. We do see some slowing down of deal activity as we get later in the year, partly because investor attention really starts to wane. Yeah, it's going to be very interesting to see how deal pace changes. For us, we have been to some degree waiting for what we're calling a capitulation in the sense that on the private side, you have many companies that finance during this boom era that we're expecting to be public now. And so they've been waiting to say, oh, look, let's see if the public markets come back. And obviously they haven't yet come back to where there's a real IPO alternative. And so they're not going to be forced to finance privately. And so we've kind of been waiting for that moment. I expect that to happen in Q4 slash Q1 of next year. I think that will be an interesting bellwether to see how those deals reprice, if at all. And I think that's going to be a really interesting opportunity for folks who are going to be active on the private side. Likewise, I think on the public side, we're seeing a lot of structured transactions where you can be very creative in terms of the deal terms that you get, because we know that you know, roughly a third of the small mid-cap biotech sector is going to have to raise money in the next 18 months. So these are the reasons why, at least for us, we suspect that this 
market where it doesn't really rip, it's probably the state of play for the next year or two. And until this kind of financing bogey, if you want to call it that, gets satisfied, it's hard for us to see a really, really robust kind of return to the, you want to call it the 2020, 2021 era. Hence the bet for me, I think the SBI bet was, you know, I think the, the mid-90s was really essentially that thesis. It's interesting on your point about capitulation. I would have expected to have happened sooner, and it just seems to be taking longer to occur than we all sort of expected. Publicly traded companies have felt the pain much more immediately, right? The share prices have adjusted dramatically from last fall to where they are today. Yeah, I think it's interesting. I'm seeing CEOs take one or two paths. There are some that are saying, you know what, I'm going to rip the Band-Aid off. I'm going to raise a bunch of new capital because I think this downturn could be three or four years long. I want to make sure I finance a company to get through my critical milestones. And I think there's another class of CEOs who are saying, effectively, let me make an XBI bet. It's going to be back in a year. So if I've got strong inside investors who've got money, let's just do a flat round and kick the can down the road. In the end, the winner on these bets will be the, related to the duration of this downturn. If it's short, that kick the can, can strategy is going to actually work just fine um, and will be the winning strategy. And if they're wrong, it's going to be a world of pain. <laughs> so I don't know what the answer is. I mean, it just goes to show you that the folks who have strong insider syndicates and or have not of capital, as I said, kind of, if I use the term resilience, they get to choose. Those companies that haven't pursued a strategy of resilience are going to have to let the market dictate to them what's going to happen. Think about how many deals we saw in the private market during the last three years, where it was a Series A into a crossover round. And now you look at that and you kind of want to shoot yourself in the head because then you suddenly realize this is a Series A. Series A venture deals could be five years to an IPO. And suddenly you're sitting there as a public fund and you're thinking, okay, on my left hand, I could do a pipe in a company that's trading 60% off its recent highs with a catalyst that's going to happen in six months, or I could invest more money into this Series B that's probably going to be four years to an IPO. I don't even have a DC yet. That's going to be a really tough fiduciary duty question if I'm sitting in that IC, right? And that's why this question of will public investors who are now in all these early stage privates, what will they do? Because I think the near-term financial decision is very obvious. They should not be participating in those private rounds. But the long-term reputational damage it's kind of forever, right? You know, once you start vaulting, it's, there's no way someone can let you in to a private deal very easily again. And some of those funds welch, it affects not just those funds, but it affects the broad class, I would say, of public investors come privately, right? Because, okay, sure, you didn't welch on me this time, but half of your compatriots did. And so generally speaking, do I kind of lump you into that class? That's why I'm, I'm fascinated to see how long this was. I mean, I think I remember you had some great data demonstrate that this current downturn is already longer than any downturn of the last 20 years. Yeah, those will be some heavy, dark days if this thing goes on much longer. I mean, sometimes I spend too much time looking at statistics and we just haven't seen a double bottom test after we began to experience a return from a correction. But there was a lot of stats I was citing while we were in the last downturn, right? So it was just, again, so many unprecedented things. However, this correction was the first time that the nadir, assuming we've seen it, was actually slightly lower than the last nadir. Before this downturn, every nadir was at a point considerably higher than the prior one. So even though the market was going up and coming down, every point it came down to was 
a positive slope from the prior nadir, right? And, the, and I sort of took some comfort in that, like, yeah, it's up and down, but at the end of the day, the line of best fit, even through the bottoms, is a positive slope. This one, it, it cut a little bit lower, single digit percentage, because I do feel like I'm going to go out on a limb and say, I, I feel we've turned the corner. It feels like things have turned up. This past summer was really encouraging. We tested bottoms earlier in the summer. And then by July, started to see stocks react in a way that, that they had tended to react. And let's just hope that this continues because it just, apart from how stocks react and apart from how valuations are impacted, it can also be demoralizing for the people working in certain of these companies, right? I think that's a really important point that a long-extended downturn has ripple effects. That is, for example, just as a little simple example, right? It impacts people's willingness to take risk, like to leave their company job at Big Pharma and jump into the lab tech. So there are, I think, scenarios where if this lasts for four or five years, you can meaningfully impair the innovative capacity of the sector. Look, I think on the positive side of the ledger here, you know, one thing that people don't fully think about is that there are GPs, meaning investors like me, but there are LPs behind us that fund us to do the work that we do. And what I think has been interesting is that I have yet to see LPs really run away. And if you think about the level of the downturn of the last year and a half, we actually still haven't seen, I'd say, wide, broad-scale redemptions in biotech hedge funds, despite that many of them are down you know, 50% plus. And so I think what that tells me, at least, is that if the LPs are willing to stay through the cycle, that means the GPs have the bullets to basically fire when this market does turn around. And I think it makes an argument that if and when it does turn around, the turnaround will be robust. And I think if you zoom out in that lens, well, I don't know if this is the quarter that says you go deploy or whether it was last quarter. But if you take the, like, the next two years, I think it's hard to argue that this is not going to be one of the best deployment periods probably in history when we go forward now five to 10 years. I hope you're enjoying our conversation with Dr. Chen Yu and that you'll stick around for the second half. But first, just a reminder that you're listening to Pathfinders in Biopharma, presented by RBC Capital Markets. I'm your host, Joe Coletti. Our goal on the podcast is really to bring you trusted market insights from industry experts in the fast-changing world of biopharma, people who know how to turn change into a competitive advantage. To find other episodes, you can go to rbccm.com forward slash biopharma. I hope you'll share this podcast with friends, colleagues, and anyone you know who could use some perspective on the changing investment landscape in this industry. Now, let's continue the conversation. I mean, I have a very non-scientific perspective on this. I believe that the way in which the broader world is viewing biotech is different than it was pre-pandemic. I think a lot of people who kind of weren't the day-to-day participants in the space, like the dedicated folks, looked at the space as sort of like quasi-lottery tickets. Who knows? There's tons of these companies. If I sprinkle some money around on this roulette table, the numbers will turn up and I'll do well. But if I can't really spread around... Maybe I shouldn't touch it because I'm just kind of picking, again, individual numbers on a roulette wheel, not even picking colors. When we really deployed capital and we being the government and companies and investors really put money to use behind trying to find a solution. And you think about the scramble to come up with a vaccine, 
I think the whole world witnessed, wow, if we put together a lot of capital with this innovation, you will get product and you'll get it in a time frame so much shorter than we historically even thought was possible. I mean, if you ask me how long a vaccine would take to produce from scratch, right, from finding the immediate appearance of said bug to vaccine, there's no way people would have thought inside of nine months. But I think that really showed people how you can accelerate development. And obviously the FDA had to be a little more flexible on emergency use authorizations and things like that. But that aside, the speed with which the progress was made was just unprecedented. And so it's less of a gamble now. It's like, okay, we just have to have the money there. Like if we put the money to the right technologies and back the right people, the right management, we should see some results. So it's less of a gamble now and more of just like every other industry, you're kind of tactically picking the ones that you think are going to be winners. I would actually agree. I think if you think about tech, every LP, even if you're a general investor, knows Google Apple, right? It's, it's a part of your lives. And before Moderna and the COVID vaccines, that wasn't the case. But if you ask an average child, they couldn't name a single about it. But now Moderna's like literally like Kleenex, right? Everyone knows that company. So I think that's a big part of it. I think the second piece is if you were to go back pre-2008, the you know, top decile of healthcare venture funds were returning like 1.5x. I mean, it was a tough place to be. And through the boom period, I think LPs realized that biotech can actually be profitable, and in many cases, even more profitable than our tech competitors. And so when you look at the market right now, and you're an LP, you're looking ahead and you're saying, okay, let's say there's a recession. Consumer discretion internet is at risk, but biotech just flows along, right? That's a defensive sector. So in many ways, we are the most relatively attractive sector, I think, in a tough economy. So I think those are two things that kind of lift biotech right now. But, you know, there's a lag, right? For example, if biotech folks can't deliver in the next three or four years, I can guarantee you LPs in their lag cycle will go right back to saying, well, well maybe we can make more money somewhere else. So I do think it's incumbent upon GPs like ourselves to deliver. And I think if that's the case, we'll continue to get the LP loyalty. We're getting towards the end. There's a couple more questions I want to ask. First, maybe over to you, Chen. We've obviously talked about a lot of different things, but for those listening, what's the most important thing you want some of the listeners to take away from the conversation, whether you're particularly, I think, biotech companies that are, that are listening into the podcast? I think it's, you know, to, to beat the dead horse, but for me, it remains this concept of resilience that don't try to spend your time trying to predict whether the market will be up or down tomorrow but try to set yourself up that you don't care. I mean, the way we set up TCGX was effectively by that concept, which is, I don't know if I'm in a hot market or a cold market, but I know that whichever one it is, I can move into the private side or the public side to find effectively the best overall opportunity in the sector. And so I think the same rule should apply to companies who should be adding to their resilience strategy to make sure that just in case this lasts for four years, they can make it. And we always end with two questions that we ask all of our guests. The first one, very biotech focused. Are there any innovations or advances in the space that have you kind of most excited for the future? That's the great thing about biotech right now is there's almost too many things to talk about there, right? I mean, I think about the scientific advances that we're making in this era versus when I was first starting in 2000. And it is literally like night and day. And that's maybe to know where like if I link a little zoom out, right, you have to be pretty bullish around where biopic is heading. Great. And now on a personal note, we want to know what you're reading and our listeners want to know what you're reading. Well, this is probably a COVID phenomenon, but I am reading a book called What Should I Do With My Life by Poe Bronson, who wrote a really interesting book where he chronicles 
this kind of existential career question or life question, if you want to call it that, among a bunch of different folks who have made some decisions that turn out to be great and some that turn out to be total disasters. And I think it's a really interesting book for folks to think about as they emerge out of this period where you, you have more flexibility to think about what you want to do with yourself. But I think it's a both inspirational but also cautionary tale that I think is actually, for me at least, I found quite useful. Shen and Noel, thanks for joining us today. Joe, thanks for having us. Joe, thanks for having me. Appreciate it. You've been listening to Pathfinders and Biopharma brought to you by RBC Capital Markets. I hope you got as much out of that conversation with Chen Yu and Noel as I did. What's really exciting about the conversation we had with Chen today was getting his unique perspective on a range of things impacting markets today. We learned a little bit more, in fact, a lot more about TCG's philosophy, their investment focus, and how they approach the market, but also getting his broader perspective on the market. We talked a lot about some of the differences between private and public investors and some of the other considerations that particularly companies need to be aware of and thinking about as they figure out how to raise capital in this market and beyond. And we also talked about you know deal structures, different deal trends that we're seeing out there, particularly in this environment, how that might change and evolve over time. And finally, Chen's point about resilience really stuck with us, both resilience for companies and investors to continue to be prepared for volatile markets and boom markets. That's it for today. I'm your host, Joe Coletti. Thanks so much for listening.